That was pretty Mother's day <laughs> If you have your Bibles, you can turn to Luke chapter 10, where we're going to be continuing on in verses 21 through 24. When I was growing up in the mountains of Idaho, there was a, a man who lived up the dirt road about a half mile uh, named Bobby and his wife lived in a cabin up there. And he was a surveyor, a very strong, you know, Marlboro type guy, um, loved hunting and hiking. And uh, he was uh, in his 50s. And uh, he started having eye problems with one of his eyes and um, went to the doctor and they said, oh, your retina is coming undetached or whatever. And so they did an operation and it fixed it for a while and then it got worse. And he ended up having, I think, three or four operations. The doctor couldn't figure out why this was happening. He said, this, there's something wrong here. He says, I, I don't know what's going on, but this isn't working. And uh, so they did a bunch of tests and they found out that he was just full of cancer. Um, just so much so that they just said, we were, it's just over. And, uh, six weeks later he was, he was gone. They tried for about two years to fix his eye, but that was just a symptom of the bigger problem. And this is how it is with most people today. You know, they have problems, you know, anger problems, lust problems, lack of self-control, anxiety, worry, you name it. And a lot of times they go to doctors because they're whatever and, you know, they get some medicine from psychiatrist or whatever to try and fix them. Uh, but that's just the symptom. They don't even understand what the real problem is. They don't understand that they are saturated. They are marinated, waterlogged in iniquity. And they don't even realize it. And there is only one cure for something like that. And it doesn't come from a pharmacy. It doesn't come from self-help books or trying to distract yourself with, you know, hobbies or work or whatever. And it's Jesus Christ. He is the only one who can cure you of your fatal disease called sin. It is through repentance and faith in Christ alone that sinners who are on their way to hell and who are totally corrupted by sin can actually be freed from sin and its consequences. This morning, as we return to Luke chapter 10, if you were here about three weeks ago, we started a series and, uh, we're calling it the sovereignty of God and salvation, and it is based on this text. Jesus has sent out the 70 disciples. They have been empowered to uh, do miracles and given authority to preach the gospel. Jesus has sent them out to all the cities where he himself was going to go so that they would kind of do some pre-evangelism there. And then Jesus would come up and kind of do the second um, tear shot at them with the gospel. Well, they've all gone out and they've come back. And when they came back, they're really excited. And they're not excited that people repented of their sins or gave their name, gave their lives to Christ and believe in the name of Jesus. But what they're excited about is that the demons were subject to them. And Jesus then kind of gives them a mild rebuke and says, listen, don't be excited that the demons are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. That is the huge deal. Then Jesus kind of gets in the 
let me show you what I mean mode. And he himself begins to praise the father. Now, there's an issue here. And it's common with a lot of people who call themselves Christians. A lot of Christians have no joy over their salvation. Why is that? You know, being saved to them, being a Christian is, you know, it's like having a couch at home. I got a couch. Yeah, I got a refrigerator. And that's about it. Yeah, that, that, that happened to me a while back. And there's no joy. There's no excitement. There's no thrill. When trials come, all they can think about is their trial and how bad it is and how much they're hurting and pray that God would make it go away. They don't have this continual joy in their life that God has saved them, though they are unworthy, that they do not deserve it. And something's wrong. There is something wrong. A lot of Christians have a very ho-hum attitude about their salvation. And this is what Jesus is driving at here. Man, rejoice that your names are written in heaven. That they're recorded in heaven in the book of life. That is our greatest reason for rejoicing. And so follow along in Luke 10, verses 21 through 24, as Jesus is now going to kind of model to the disciples what he is talking about. He says, at that time, he rejoiced greatly in the Holy Spirit and said, I praise you, O Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and intelligent and have revealed them to infants. Yes, Father, for this way was well-pleasing in your sight. All things have been handed over to me by my Father. No one knows who the Son is except the Father. And who the Father is except the Son. And anyone to whom the Son wills to reveal him. Turning to the disciples, he said privately, Blessed are your eyes which see the things you see. For I say to you that many prophets and kings wished to see the things that you see and did not see them and to hear the things which you hear and did not hear them. This is an amazing text. This is good. Jesus rejoices for two reasons. The first reason he rejoices is that the father intentionally hides the truth from those Jesus describes as the wise intelligent so they cannot be saved. Jesus is praising God for that. Think about that. What if that's your husband or your wife or your son or your daughter or a close friend or co-worker? Think about that. If you have ever read Pilgrim's Progress, John Bunyan speaks of Christian fleeing from the city of destruction because he meets up with a man named Evangelist who kind of helps him understand this book that he has been reading. He falls into the slew or slough of despond and he's got this huge burden on his back that's fixed there and he can't get it off. He almost drowns and if help hadn't come along and pulled him out and got him on the way again to the, to the narrow gate across the field, um, he would have surely drowned. 
And as he's working his way uh, across the field and kind of just beelining it towards the narrow gate, which everybody must enter if they're going to get on the way to heaven, he meets up with one Mr. Worldly Wise Man from the, the town of Carnal Policy. And Mr. Worldly Wise Man sees him and uh, he begins to engage him in conversation, asks him where he's going. He says, oh, you know, I am I'm in trouble. I have this great burden on my back. I am leaving the city of destruction and I'm going into the narrow gate. The, this is where evangelist told me to go. And Worldly Wise Man says, oh, that's too bad. Evangelist is sees a good man, but... He doesn't give very good advice. He says, listen, if you want that burden off your back, all you need to do is, is go to the nearby town of morality. And there you will find one Mr. Legality or his son, civility. And either of them, they can take that burden off. So Christian doesn't know very much. He's just new on the way. So he says, okay. And pretty soon he's on this very treacherous um, cliff with his great burden. And pretty soon he pretty much gets to the end of it. And there's just nothing but the pit of hell before him. And the providence of God evangelist shows up to give him a rebuke and says, what are you doing here? And so he gets him back on the right way. Well, the world is full of worldly wise men and women who think that they're good enough to get to heaven on their own, that their deeds are going to get there on their own, that they're better than most people, and so they get to go to heaven, or when put on the balances, their good deeds outweigh their bad deeds, and so they get to go to heaven, or they've never committed any of their really bad things, and so they get to go to heaven, whatever it may be. Whether it's a false religion, whether it's a denial, whether it's a a self-righteousness, whether it's a work salvation of some sort, the fact is that way leads to hell and only to hell. And in our text, Jesus rejoices that the father purposely hides truth from people like this. Secondly, Towards the end of verse 21, if you look there, Jesus also rejoices that the Father has revealed them, that is the truths of the gospel, to infants. And we we learn that he's not talking about literal babies here. He's talking about those who, like children, are totally dependent upon God for their salvation, who realize they cannot save themselves, they are hopeless, they are helpless, and without God, they cannot deliver themselves from the consequences of their own sin. And the Father is well pleased, Jesus says. Look at verse 21. Yes, Father, for this way, that is this revealing of truth to infants was well pleasing in your sight as long as, as, as uh, in addition to hiding it from the wise and intelligent. And that's what Jesus is rejoicing at. He's rejoicing that God, the Father, plays this part of revealing and hiding truth. And then in verse 22, look there, Jesus says, all things have been handed over to me by my father. And we know that Jesus certainly has been given all things. But specifically in this context, it's talking about him receiving from the father, those the father has chosen to reveal the truth to. 
And what's interesting is how the father chooses to reveal the truth to them. If you look down in the middle of verse 22, it says, then Jesus says, and no one knows the son except the father and who the father is except the son and anyone to whom the son wills to reveal him. And we know that Jesus only did the will of who? The father. Sounds pretty exclusive, doesn't it? The text almost sounds like God is sovereign in salvation. Jesus concludes in verse 23 by telling the 70 that they have seen and heard things that kings and prophets long to see and hear. They get to see Jesus, God incarnate, the Messiah in flesh and hear him teach and watch him live. And experience salvation through faith in him. Something that the prophets and kings of the past only wished they could have encountered. Jesus in John 14 said to Philip, if you have seen me, you've seen who? The father. They get, got to see the character of the father, the will of the father lived out in Jesus. And Jesus makes some incredible statements here with some incredible implications, doesn't he? There are people out there, Jesus says, the wise and intelligent, who are kept from the truth. There are people out there, the infants, the hopeless, the helpless, who get the truth revealed to them. And it is obvious that no one has the ability, the power, the resources within themselves to get at the truth they need to get at in order to be saved. It is either granted or withheld by divine decree. I don't know about you, but that can kind of unsettle you. Why pray? Why send missionaries out? I mean, if God is so in control, if he's so sovereign, if he's so over everything, then why even bother? These are good questions, aren't they? That's why we're looking at this. Because a lot of people look at this and and they they come and they, they just don't know how to handle it. Now, obviously, our text is talking about... The salvation of men. Jesus, the son of man, has come to save men. He has saved some, these 70, and sent these men out to preach to other men so that they might be saved and they might go tell other men about the saving truth of the gospel. And we've already learned that men were created on the sixth day of creation. That God created mankind and created him in his image. And that the image of God consists of two basic things. One, characteristics and attributes which God has that men have to some degree. Of course, it's very corrupted now by the fall. Secondly, that men have a role that is similar to God. Just as God rules over heaven and earth, so he creates man, puts him on the earth and says, rule over, subdue. The earth and all of its creatures. Of course, when men then submitted to Satan, they lost their dominion. They lost their righteousness. 
We learned that people have both physical attributes and spiritual attributes. That God has men created into a composite entity of both spiritual things and physical things. And they stay together until you die. And then they're separated until the resurrection. Then they're reunited again. And so that's what man is. But what if someone were to come up to you and they were to say, you know, you are so evil and wicked. I mean, how would you respond to that? No, sir. See, I think a lot of people would be very quick to defend themselves against such accusations. Why? There's only one reason why, and it's because they see themselves as holy and righteous and good. So let me ask you, are you wicked and evil or not? Will you deny that you're a sinner? Well, somebody says, well, you know, I'm a sinner, but I'm not evil and wicked. Oh, so you're a holy sinner. You have this special kind of sin, which is good and holy and just. It's kind of strange, isn't it? I'm, I'm not evil and wicked. I'm just a sinner. Hmm. Most Christians will admit they're sinners, but refuse to admit they're wicked and evil. You know, someone says, well, you know, I, you know, yeah, I sinned when I was saved, though. I became a saint. I became a holy one. Oh, so you quit sinning? Well, no. So then you're wicked and evil. Well, no. Well, then what are you? To understand the sovereignty of God and salvation, you have to start at the base of the mountain. The sovereignty of God in salvation is the pinnacle of all doctrines. But you have to start at the base before you get to the peak. And at the base is the doctrine of man and sin. And so this is why we're going into this. We've looked at man. Now we're going to start getting into sin. And there are six issues related to the sin of mankind that I want to cover. We're going to look at two this morning. You can't get to the peak unless you start at this level. Now, if you're thinking to yourself, well, okay, Jack, um, are you going to be preaching from this passage? Well, not really. I'm just going to preach from the implications of the passage. I explained this before. You know, in, in this almost seven years I've been here, we've never really gone through this doctrine clearly, and so we're going to do it. Because this is such an important thing, and our world has totally lost touch with reality when it comes to what they are and what their problem is. They're all trying to get their eye fixed when they've got a lot bigger problems. So first, we need to know what sin is. What is sin anyways? You know, it used to be that people were taught the Bible in public schools. You'd go to public school, you would be taught the Bible. You would know what sin is. But now, it's against the law to teach the Bible in public schools. And most people have become biblically illiterate. Most churches don't even teach the Bible. Which is a strange thing. I mean, don't think if you've come here for a long time that this is how it is everywhere. It's not. In most churches, 
you know, there's a verse read and then the preacher says what he wants from the reader's digest of the paper. And so people have lost touch with a knowledge of sin. And, you know, you come up to the average person and talk about sin and what's going in in their mind is murder. You know, running a plane into a skyscraper, some big sort of capital crime. And that's big, you know, the seven deadly sins. Listen, there's a lot more than seven. Every sin is deadly of any degree or kind. The world is ignorant of its disease. And why is that? Why is that? It's because they're ignorant of God and his word. When you don't understand the word of God, you don't have a knowledge of sin. And since the world is doing everything it can to get the scriptures and the knowledge of God out of the public and out of the schools and out of everything they can, people then are growing less, less clued in about their, their problem, which is their sin. Paul says in Romans chapter 4, verse 15, for the law brings about wrath, but where there is no law, there is no violation. If you don't understand the law, how do you know that you're violating it or not? If there's no law, there's no violation. And so we've gotten rid of the law of God in our society and with it the knowledge of sin. And so we need to see how God defines sin. Now, I'm going to be all over the place. And you might want to just listen if you're too slow to keep up. Some people are going, oh, yeah. (laughs) Okay, we'll see if you can keep up. Daniel 9, verse 11. Daniel's praying. He's confessing his sins and the sins of Israel. And this is what he says. And listen to, to how he defines sin here. He says, indeed, all Israel has transgressed your law. And turned aside, not obeying your voice. So the curse has been poured out on us along with the oath which is written in the law of Moses, the servant of God, for we have sinned against him. Now here, there's tons of words in both the Old and New Testament that talk about sin and synonyms for sin. But here we have transgressed your law, turned aside, not obeyed your voice. That's what sin is. When God says, this is right and this is wrong. Do this and don't do that. And we do what we shouldn't and we don't do what we should. In 1 John chapter 3 verse 4, John speaking about love and how it is antithetical to sin says this. Everyone who practices sin also practices lawlessness and sin is lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. So that's what sin is to break the law. You know, we've all been there. You go up to a stop sign. You see somebody else approaching from a different angle. And just as you're stopping, they kind of just, you know, slow down a little bit and roll through. They have just broken the law. They have acted in a lawless way. Now, is it because they don't know what the law is? No, they know what the law is. I mean, there's a huge sign that says stop. What is it? What's the problem? They don't want to submit to the law. They don't want to place themselves under the authority of the law. And so they act 
lawlessly. That's sin. This is why John says in 1 John chapter 2, verse 16, that all sin has its roots in the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life. We want the pleasure of our sin so badly, we're willing to sin against Almighty God to get it. We make ourselves God. We make our own laws, our own rules, and we govern our own self. And this is why sin in the scriptures is equated with idolatry. You know, idol worship isn't just about sitting down and, you know, hunkering down and from sort of, you know, carved wood thing, lighting some incense and, you know, bowing down to it. Listen to what Paul says in Colossians chapter 3 verse 5. Now listen to how he lists these different sins and then what he says at the end. He says, therefore, consider the members of your earthly body as dead to immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and greed, which amounts to idolatry. Why? Because every time we sin, what we're doing is, is we're saying, God... I don't want you ruling over my life. I am going to be my own God for my own purposes and my own glory. And so I am going to set you aside and do what I want to do, which plain and simple is an act of idolatry. In 1 John 5.17, John gives us another definition of sin when he says all unrighteousness is sin. Now what is unrighteousness not doing right? How do we know what to do? How do we know what's right to do? By the word of God. There we're back to it again, right? Sin is to transgress the word of God. You know, when you're sharing the gospel with somebody, you've probably encountered this and it just amazes me. And you know, you forget sometimes if you've been a Christian a long time or grown up in a Christian home, you may just marvel at this when somebody says, I'm not a sinner. And your jaw just kind of just Hangs down and hits the ground and you pick it up and snap it back in place. What? I'm a good person. Really? You just lied. You just sinned. In their minds, they're pretty decent folk because they've, quote, never committed adultery or murdered anybody or robbed a bank. James and James 2 verses 10 11 right after discussing the sin of partiality says this for whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles at one point he has become guilty of all for he who said do not commit adultery also said do not commit murder. Now, if you do not commit adultery, but you do commit murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. I think it's interesting that he puts those two sins, murder and adultery, up there. Because those are the two sins that sinners who think they're righteous often say they don't commit. And that's what makes them righteous. It's like it just happened by chance. God knows where men are at. But do you see what he's saying there? James is saying the law of God is composite. It is a composite entity, a single unit made of many laws. And you break one law, you've broken the unit. You chip a plate 
The plate is chipped. How many chips do you need in a plate to have a chipped plate? It's broken. And okay, let's just say you were able to, you know, perfectly mend that broken spot and you chipped it in another spot. Now what? It's a chipped plate. You sin, you break the law. You've broken the law of God. You are a transgressor of the law. You are lawless. That's what James is saying. It's over. You're sitting at home. You're reading your Bible. Some wicked thought comes into your mind. You've sinned. You've broken the whole law. You've got to be kidding me. No, I'm not kidding you. The whole thing? The whole thing. You're guilty. How can that be? And all sin's bad. It's all evil. It's all wicked. Now, if you're still sitting out there and you're thinking to yourself, yes, yes, I know I, I commit these mistakes, these deeds, these hey, thoughts, but this is common. These are just things that are common to all mankind. It's, it's natural. It's, it's, it, you can't avoid this. I mean, that doesn't make me evil and wicked. Okay. Let's just talk about this. God says, you shall worship and serve God only. Have you ever, ever in your life, ever given to someone else or yourself that which belonged to God? Time, energy, resources? I know the answer. It's yes. Idolatry. Have you ever... Not made a graven image and worshipped it and bowed down to it. Have you ever served a thing? A thing. A car. A hobby. A house. A TV. I don't know. Whatever it is. Have you ever given to anything that which belongs to God in any degree? Idolater. Have you ever taken the name, the Lord's name in vain? You know, maybe use God or Jesus as an expletive or a filler word or just used it irreverently at any time, even once. You're guilty. How about the Sabbath? Well, you say the Sabbath. Paul tells us. We aren't to let anyone judge us in regard to a festival or new moon or Sabbath that one man regards one day above another. Another man regards every day like let each man be fully convinced of their own mind. Okay. Okay. He says that you're right. But is there a principle there that maybe we should be spending time every week to rest and worship God? Is there ever a week ever gone by where you didn't do that? You are guilty. How about honoring your father and mother? This is Mother's Day. Ever not done that? Just ask your mom. (laughs) You are guilty. Oh, but you say, I haven't committed murder. I'm good on that one. Jesus says in Matthew 5, 21 and 22, that everyone who is angry with his brother has committed murder in his heart. Think about that. Why Why does he say that? Because the seed sin that leads to murder is anger and hatred towards one's brother. 
Every murder that has ever been committed starts there. And that sin then grows to become the full-blown act. And so if you're angry with somebody, Jesus says you're guilty before the court as a murderer. You ever been angry with anybody? Sure you have. You are a murderer. Thou shalt not commit adultery. Oh, but I've never done that one. What does Jesus say? Any man who looks at a woman to lust after her in his heart has committed adultery in his heart. Just as anger and hatred are the seed sins that lead to murder, so lust is the seed sin that leads to adultery. Same sin, but just smaller degree. You're adulterer. You shall not steal. Ever stolen anything? Even a small thing? Paper clip? Pencil? Ever not given to the Lord when you knew you should have? And stole from God? Have you ever cheated on your income tax? Told, uh, had the cashier give you a little bit too much change and you kind of rejoiced that she gave you more than you deserved and you didn't tell her and you stole from her? That company? You're a thief. You're guilty. You shall not bear a false witness ever told a bold-faced lie, ever just slightly twisted the truth, kind of just altered things a little bit, just maybe changed the facts just some degree, deceiver, liar, guilty. Ever covet anything that someone else has, a wife, a possession, a car, a Bugatti environment? Mm. You're guilty. But then says, oh, Pastor Jack, bless your soul. I think you've overlooked one thing. We're not under law, but grace. You're quoting us the heart of the law of Moses. Paul makes it clear we are not under law, the law of Moses, but under grace. Okay, you're right. You caught me. So let's just put you under the law of Christ, which the New Testament says you're under. Let me ask you this. How many of you, every moment of every day, are worshiping the Lord with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength? Anybody squeaky clean there? (laughs) How about this? Love your neighbor as yourself all the time. Guilty, guilty, guilty. We're all guilty. We're all guilty. You little hide behind behind the law of Christ, the royal law, the law of liberty. It's just as scary. You need to realize that you are guilty before God as a sinner. Unless you're saved and we're getting there. Everybody is born a sinner and sins because they're a sinner. And we are just saturated in it. And a lot of people don't even realize it. And you know what? That is why they don't rejoice over their salvation. Because they've missed it. Now, we want to get into, before we get into the really scary stuff, We're just getting into it is we need to ask ourselves, where did sin come from anyways? 
You know, I mean, this is all convicting, so we're just going to leave the convicting stuff for a minute. And let's just talk about where did sin come from anyways? Think about that. In Genesis chapter 3, verse 1, why don't you turn there and do a little Genesis 3 stuff. Genesis 3, verse 1, there's a very interesting verse. Well, Look back at uh, Genesis 1, verse 31. In Genesis 1, 31, after God creates everything, it's the sixth day, and we read, God saw all that he made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning the sixth day. Now think about this. At the end of the sixth day, after he created everything, God says, it is very good. There is no sin then in chapter 2 is nothing more than a detailed explanation of the sixth day. So really at the end of chapter 2 is the same place we're at at the end of chapter 1, the end of the sixth day. Now something happened in between the white spaces at the end of chapter 2 and the beginning of chapter 3. When we read in chapter 3, now the serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Indeed, has God said, You shall not eat from any tree of the garden. Now there's evil in the good creation. This is where sin came from. Somewhere after creation, when God created the heavens and the earth and all they contain, there was rebellion in heaven... And Satan convinced a third of the holy angels to rebel with him against God. And that is where sin entered into creation. And then it was from that point that Satan then, out of malice and out of hate, went down to deceive Adam and Eve, who were innocent, to try and get back at God. And Jesus, speaking of this, in John eight forty four, says this, speaking to the religious leaders, you are of your father, the devil, and you do, and you want to do the desires of your father. They were trying to kill Jesus. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. Whenever he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own nature, for he is a liar and the father of lies. And Jesus' whole point is this, is the devil has been a murderer from the beginning. When he says beginning, he says in the beginning of creation. Why does he say that? Well, it's not because Satan, you know, with his own being killed Adam and Eve, but he was the instrument by which that temptation came, which deceived Eve and killed her and made Adam sin willfully and killed him. He was the instigator of the rebellion of Adam and Eve. And so he is described as a murderer from the beginning John says something similar in 1 John 3, 8, where he says, The one who practices sin is of the devil, for the devil has sinned from the beginning. The Son of God appeared for this purpose that he might destroy the works of the devil. Again, in both of these texts, Satan is described as the murderer and sinner from the beginning. That is, from the beginning of creation. That's the origin of sin. That's where sin came from, when Satan though created perfect, willingly rebelled against God. Well, you might think to yourself then, well, if that's the case, then 
then it's not Eve's fault. She was deceived. Well, no. In 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 13 and 14, when Paul is speaking of the role of women in public worship and why they are to fulfill their God-given role, he says this, For it was Adam who was first created and then Eve. And it was not Adam who was deceived, but the woman being quite deceived fell into transgression. Transgression is willful rebellion against God. How about Adam? Hosea comments on Adam, comparing Adam to Israel. Hosea, speaking of wayward Israel, says, But like Adam, they have transgressed the covenant. There they have dealt treacherously against me. Hosea 6, 7. So how Adam sin was viewed by God is that Adam dealt treacherously against God and transgressed against God. The same word that Paul uses of Eve. So Satan is not responsible for actually causing them to sin, but being the agent by which way they were tempted to sin. But it's worse than that. Because once Adam and Eve sin, they then become sinners and then are cursed because of their sin. Now we have Mrs. Sin and Mr. Sin, who then have children, who are children of sin. Yeah. They're conceived in sin, born in sin, and then sin because they're sinners. Paul says in Romans chapter 5 verse 12, Therefore, just as through one man sin entered into the world and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. This is what is called the, the imputation or the reckoning of Adam's sin to mankind. It's just the way it is. You know, if you have parents who are dogs, you're a dog. It's just the way it is. If your parents are cats, you're a cat. If your parents are sinners, you're a sinner. Now, you may be wondering then, well, you know, if Satan seems responsible for Adam and Eve's sin, or he led them or tempted them, and Eve was deceived, and even though she did it because of that, certainly we can't be guilty. Because of that. Oh, yes, we can. Yes, we can. You can't just blame Satan for your rebellion. You can't blame Adam or Eve for your rebellion. This is called blame shifting. And look at Genesis 3.11. In Genesis 3.11, this is blame shifting is nothing new. God asks Adam a simple question when after he finds him cowering with their fig leaf garments in the bushes. Have you eaten from the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? Simple yes or no question. And do you remember how Adam responded? Look at the text. He said, the woman you gave to be with me, she gave me from the tree and I ate. Let me just read this really slow again, and I want you to see who Adam blamed. The woman you gave me. 
She gave me from the tree and I ate. Who did Adam blame? God. Amazing, isn't it? Here's God. He's perfectly holy. I mean, he's transcendent, you know? I mean, he creates them perfect. He puts them in a perfect environment. He gives them one rule. Adam doesn't even deceive. He just willfully rebels. And when God says, what's this you have done? Say, it's your fault. That woman you gave me, she gave me some bad fruit. And what is amazing, that God turns to Eve, look at the text, what is this that you have done? And notice what Eve says, the serpent deceived me and I ate. Now, was it true that the serpent deceived her? Huh? Yeah, sure. And that she ate, right? Right. But let's look at the question again. What is this that you have done? Not what is this that Satan did. God wasn't talking to Satan. He was talking to Eve. He wanted to know what Eve had done. Not what Satan did. So Adam says, it's your fault. You gave me the bad woman who gave me the bad fruit. Turns to the woman. What is this? It was the serpent. He did it. This is blame shifting. And people are good at it and it comes naturally. I can't help it. I grew up in a non-Christian home. My parents were Christians. My dad left home when I was little. He was an alcoholic. I, I, uh, I grew up in a bad neighborhood. My brothers and sisters taught me to sin. It was the wife you gave me. It was the mother-in-law. A kid goes on some shooting rampage or somebody goes postal and shoots a bunch of people. And what's wrong? Well, you know, it's the psychiatrist's fault because they didn't have their medications adjusted. Oh, it was because of those violent video games that they were compelled to play and compelled to act out and go buy a gun and sneak and plan and then go on the shooting rampage. And obviously they're not responsible for their actions. Oh, yes, they are. Turn to James chapter 1. Turn to James chapter 1. In this section, James is talking about trials that are coming upon the believer. In verses 2, all the way down through verse 13. So he's talking about trials. He's talking about how those trials come upon us. And there is this great temptation that happens every time a trial comes upon us, especially if we respond in an ungodly way. Well, I can't help it because what? You blame somebody else. You blame, well, you don't know what I'm going through. You don't live in my house. You don't have four teenagers at home or whatever it is. You don't know my boss. Blame shifting. And really, James brings them to the place where they realize, listen, what you're really doing is you're, you're blaming God. And he says in verse 14, if you look there, this is right after he says in verse 13, don't let anybody say when he's being tempted, he's being tempted by God. Don't go blame shifting. He says in verse 14, but each one is tempted when he is carried away and he is enticed by his own lusts. 
And he says, then when lust has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. Notice several things here. You are tempted and enticed because of your own sinful lusts. Have you ever been tempted to drop a bowling ball on your foot? Have you ever been tempted to slam your hand in a car door? Or maybe to thrust your hand uh, into the, uh, turn on the burner and put your hand in the flames there for a while and just let it cook? Why not? Why doesn't that tempt you? Because it doesn't bring you any pleasure. It doesn't bring you any gain. And so it's not tempting to you. What does tempt you? Things that bring you pleasure, satisfaction, pump up your pride, your ego, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the boastful pride of life. That's what tempts us. You know, you can't just blame other people and other things for your sins. And James says each one is tempted and enticed by his own desires, his own lusts. Notice also the progression here. Your lust breaks the barrier of your heart, erodes your self-control. You start fantasizing and imagining, imagining what this sin would be like, and then you commit it. It all starts in the heart. You ever wonder why in the scriptures that the heart, we are told in Proverbs 4.23, to guard your heart with all diligence, for from it flow the springs of life. Do you ever wonder why that is? It's because your heart is the control center of your whole being. If you're trying to stop sinning by controlling your outward behavior, man, you're just mowing the top of the blades off. You got to dig it out by the roots and the roots are in your heart. If you don't deal with sin at the heart level, you'll never have victory over it. It will just dominate you forever. It's all about what's in the heart and the heart then when it starts losing its control, when it starts caving into the imaginations, then it's only a matter of time before things are acted out in the deed. Eve's first sin was not eating the fruit. Eve's first sin was lusting after the fruit. And it was that lust in her heart which then gave birth to the action of eating. And notice also at the end of verse 15 that when we sin, when sin is accomplished, bottom line, it brings forth death. Which means it's always your fault. And you have to pay the consequences for it. No one ever makes you sin. We all know that verse. It's a very encouraging verse. It's in 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians chapter um, 10. Where Paul is talking about how we as, as believers need to look into the Old Testament. See the examples of those who have fallen into sin. And then we need to learn from their sin what we're not to do. And he says, listen, no temptation has overcome you, but such as is common to man is God is faithful and he will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able. But with the temptation, he's going to provide a way of escape. Now, let me ask you this. If that verse is true, then who's responsible for your sin? You are. 
You see, if you couldn't help but sin, then God wouldn't be able to help you escape. But you can escape if you're a believer. And so you are responsible. So it wasn't the devil who made you do it, like Philip Wilson taught a long time ago. It wasn't your wife or your brother, your boss. It wasn't the times we live in. It was you, and it was only you, and it's always you. You are the one who sins. That makes you a guilty sinner. Now, we have a lot more to cover. (laughs) We're almost out of time. Um, Let me just give you two things here. First, if you are a believer, if you know you are saved, born again... Their life's been changed and you have no doubt of that. You see the fruit of it and you're pursuing righteousness. You need to look at your life and you need to say, do you rejoice in your salvation? I tell you this. You can be sure that people who don't rejoice in their salvation do not meditate on their sin. You need to meditate on your sin. Just how sinful you are. How, how frequently you go astray in thought and in deed, how, how much you've sinned in the past, how much you sin in the present, how, how frequently your deeds fall short of the glory of God. All of those things I am telling you, if you meditate on them, will make salvation that much sweeter. It will, it will magnify the grace of God. It will show you how kind God has been to you because you were saved and you didn't deserve it. Salvation is by grace. It is undeserved, unearned mercy that you're saved by. It's the love of God, which you didn't deserve. And God saves you by these things. Why? Because you're a rebel. You're an evil, rotten sinner. We all are. But the great thing is, is that's the only kind of people Jesus came to save. And when you meditate on that, you may think to yourself, oh, Jack, that sounds depressing. Do I have to? Yes. Dwell on it. Think about it when you're praying to God and it will just bubble up and you praise and thankfulness. Listen, when you are saved by some incredible act and somebody delivers you from this incredible catastrophe, you are thankful. When you're hanging from some precipice and somebody barely saves you before you plunge to your death. He's like, oh, thank you, thank you. Why? Because you saw the peril. You saw the danger. And that makes you that much more thankful. Remember what Jesus said? The one who is forgiven much does what? Loves much. You want to love God much? Think about your sin. Oh, do it. Think about how sinful you are and you'll just, you would just love God for saving you. Now, if you don't know Christ, maybe you just call yourself a Christian. Maybe you come to church. You don't read your Bible. You don't pray. You don't really love the Lord. You're afraid of going to hell and you think, you know, I'm just going to show up to church and, and hopefully maybe someday this is going to help me. Well, today is the day that it's going to help you. You need to give your life to Christ. What are you waiting for? What sin is there in your life that's so wonderful? You're willing to gamble your eternal soul on it. Eternity on it. 
Do you really think that whatever sin that's keeping you from God is bringing you so much pleasure that knowing the God of the universe, having the free gift of eternal life and every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places forever and eternity is actually going to be less than what you're experiencing now. Think about that. It's just amazing to ponder what God is just offering you. Come to me, all you are weak and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. As many as received him, he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name. Think about that. If you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And this is what you need to do. Because we're all sinners and we're all guilty and there's only one way to escape. There's only one cure and that's Jesus, the way, the truth and the life. And no one comes to the father, but through him. I just want you to know, if you think to yourself, man, this is bad. It's going to get worse. We're just, we're just getting in. Somebody came up after the service and said, man, you, you, you just kind of skimmed right by some pretty serious issues. Yeah, that's because I'm saving them for later. (laughs) So if you know Christ, rejoice in your salvation. It is your greatest reason for rejoicing. If you don't know Christ, repent of your sins. Believe in what he did, his death, his burial, his resurrection to save you in that alone. And then you too will have that same reason for rejoicing. Let's pray. Father, we are grateful this morning for your grace and kindness to us. Father, we don't deserve to be saved. We know that. And yet we know we are all guilty sinners. We have all violated your law. We've transgressed your covenant. Father, we've broken what we know to be true. And Father, because of that, we stand as guilty before you and in need of salvation. Father, I pray that if there is anybody here who doesn't know you this morning, Father, may your Holy Spirit soften their heart. May they see their desperate situation and may they cry out to Jesus and may you save them and deliver them from the wrath to come that they might have the free gift of eternal life and begin to enjoy pleasures which will last for all eternity. Father, do that for your own glory's sake. And for the rest of us who know you, may we take time to meditate on our sinfulness that we might love you much and rejoice in the God of our salvation. Father, we pray all this in Christ's name. Amen.